Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are very pleased to have with us today Rabbi Mordechai Torziner. Rabbi Torziner received his BA from Yeshiva University and subsequently rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva University's Rabbi Isaac Elfanon Theological Seminary. Rabbi Torziner served as Rabbi of the Young Israel of Altakit, Rhode Island, for four years, and then Congregation Sons of Israel in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Additionally, Rabbi Torziner has served two terms on the Executive Committee of the Rabbinical Council of America, the RCA. And since its founding in August of 2009, Rabbi Torziner has served as Rosh Beit Medrash, Beit Medrash Zichron Dov in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. One can find thousands and thousands of Rabbi Torziner's shiurim, lessons, and articles that are featured on yutora.org. And today we will be discussing fascinating topic of the Gaonic period, the Gaonim, who were they, writings of the Gaonim, what were they? Again, Rabbi Torzino, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm flattered. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I want to start out by just noting that I'm not a professional historian. Um, yeah, I've had the benefit of learning from historians as well as reading, and that's uh, what's brought me to, to the point of speaking about the Gaonim. Thank you. Um, just as, as an overview, um, what period are we talking about when we speak of the Gaonic period? Where do they live? And what academies, institutions did they run? Okay, so that's actually, that opening question, the period of time that covers the Gaonic period, is probably the hardest question you're going to ask me uh, overall, because um, it's really unclear. Um, we know that the Talmud Bavli, Babylonian Talmud, is canonized by the end of the 5th century. Ravina and Ravashi are credited with the closing of the Talmud. We're also taught that after that is a period called the period of the Savoraim. And according to a letter written by Rav Shrira Gaon, which we're going to talk about, I think, later on, um, the Savoraim have the job of resolving outstanding issues in the Gemara, and they actually insert certain passages into the Gemara. And it's very unclear, number one, um, how long that period runs, and number two, whether it overlaps with the period that we call the period of the Gaonim. So trying to identify the beginning of the period of the Gaonim becomes a little bit controversial. Uh, Rav Shri Ragon puts it as roughly the year 589 or 590 of the Common Era. Um, the, the, I, I should probably define the term Gaon as part of that, and that'll make it clear as to you know, why there's some hesitation about the dating. Um, the term Gaon itself comes from the term Gava, or power, authority, greatness. And it was the term associated with the head of the yeshiva. And the, uh, the part of the debate about when to start the period of the Gaonim is when did they start actually using that title for the head of the yeshiva? Is that something that's going on during the time of the Savoraim? We had yeshivas going back to the times of the Gemara. 
um, at what point did they start calling the head of the yeshiva a Gaon? But like I said, Rav Shvira Gaon thinks that it's the year 589, 590 or so. And that seems to coincide with the end of a period when the yeshivas had actually been closed by the Persian or Sasanian government. Um, there's a, a period of persecution in which they're not able to run the yeshivas, and then they restart, and that is the uh, the official, for better or for worse, beginning of the period of the Gaonim. That's where that's our starting point. When does it end? Just as controversial. Um, the yeshivas of the Gaonim are somewhat in decline already in the 10th century, and I want to talk about that um, a little bit later. Um, certain Gaonim strengthened them and kept them going, and the last of the great Gaonim is Rav Haigaon. And Rav Haigaon passes away in the year 1038. So Rabbi Avram ibn Daud in the work Sefer HaKabbalah says that's pretty much the end of the Gaonic period. It goes on for a few years after his death, but that's the end. And that tends to be the popular date for the end of the period of the Gaonim. However, letters that have been found in the Cairo Geniza indicate that it continued for quite a while after that, um, there was actually a Talmud Chacham by the name of Shmuel Ben Ali, who claimed the title of Gaon, who gets into controversies with the Rambam in the 12th century. So there are people using the title of Gaon afterwards. They don't have the same influence as the Gaonim we think of earlier. They're much more local in their authority. Um, usually, I would feel comfortable saying started in the year 589, ended in the year 1038, acknowledging there's fuzziness in the beginning and there's fuzziness at, at the end. Um, in terms of where they lived and the academies that they, they ran, so again, yeshivos are an old phenomenon long before there are gonim. You know, the heads of the yeshivos might have been called Reish Mesipta, uh, Reish Kala, different, different names for different functions in different times. But the Gonim are specifically associated with with yeshivos, which were primarily in Bavel. Um, We're talking about uh, yeshiva in Sura. There's yeshiva in Matamachsia, which may be, according to some historians, the same as the yeshiva in Sura. Uh, There's yeshiva in Pumpedisa, uh, also known as Fallujah. Um, There's yeshiva in Neherda, which, again, some historians associate with the one in Pumpedisa. Um, Ultimately, that moves to Baghdad. Um, it is worth noting, though, that there were yeshivas outside of these areas. Um, for example, in Kerwan, uh, in what is today Tunisia, there was a yeshiva, um, and there was one in, uh, in at least one in Eretz Yisrael, in, uh, in Israel. So the Gaonim would have been the heads of these different yeshivas. And um, so they're, they're called Gaonim um, primarily in Babylon and Bavel, though not exclusively. What is the scope of their authority? And as as you described, moving from the, the closure of the Talmud to the Zavarayim, what is their role in transmission of the Talmud and Halacha to the next generation? So, as heads of the yeshivas, the Gaonim were the central halachic authorities to answer questions sent from the distant reaches of the Jewish world. And that was very important, not only in terms of, of you know, the, uh, the needs of the communities who would send them 
questions, but it was important for the centrality of the yeshiva. As long as people are sending questions, they see the yeshiva as important, um, and they fund it, quite frankly, so that when they sent questions to the yeshiva, they would also send a donation. It's very interesting. Uh, you know, there's a classic debate between the Rambam and others, including the Tashbates, uh, regarding funding people who are studying Torah. And uh, the, the Tashbates takes the position that, um, that people are supposed to be funding the study of Torah. And one of his bases for saying that is a letter which was sent to a Gaon in which they also sent a donation. So he quoted that as a, uh, as a basis for it. So the Gaonim are answering halachic questions from communities. These communities are all around the Mediterranean. So across North Africa, whether you're talking about something that would be relatively close to them, let's say, you know, the, the area of Egypt, or whether you're talking about as far west as Morocco, um, it would be along the northern coast of the Mediterranean as well. So, you know, all the way to, to Spain and Portugal, um, they're, they're sending questions to the Gaonim. Uh, the Gaonim taught Torah in the yeshiva, um, as well as in the surrounding community. At different times, Gaonim had classes for local people from the community who were not part of the, uh, the yeshiva. Um, the questions they answered were sometimes about halacha, but they were sometimes also about machshava, about you know, ideas, Jewish philosophy. Um, sometimes, as we'll see, their questions related to Jewish history. To a greater or lesser extent, uh, the Gaonim were also political leaders. And sometimes that created a problem because there was a, a position called the Reish Galusa, the Exilarch, uh, who was the official political leader. And there were issues with religious leadership and the Reish Galusa going back to the times of the Gemara. Uh, it's very interesting that the, that the Navi Zechariah talks about the two sons of the oil, or sons of the olive, Shnei Bnei Hayitzhar, working together. Uh, and uh, commentators say that that refers to the political leadership and the religious leadership working together. Well, that was something that was a challenge during the period of the Gaonim, so that the Gaon sometimes ended up being a political leader when there was disagreement between the Gaon and the, uh, and the Reish Kalusa. So let's starting in with uh, our first Gaon today. Um, who was Rav Achai Gaon? Okay, so we'll start with Rav Achai. Rav Achai is born in somewhere around the year 680. Um, I've seen different accounts of when he passed away, 1752, 1762. Um, we know he made Aliyah sometime after the year 750 based on Rav Shrira Gaon's writings. Um, he learned under someone by the name of Marshmuel Reish Kala uh, in the yeshiva in Matamachsia. Uh, and, and he was considered very authoritative among the Gaonim. Um, he gets quoted by other Gaonim in their writings, in their responsa. Um, moving later in Jewish history, after the period of the Gaonim, to the period of the Rishonim, Rashi quotes him, Rabbi Nassan of Rome, also known as Rabbi Nassan, author of the Aruch, quotes him, um, very widely quoted, widely relied upon. Um, but as I understand it, he wasn't actually a Gaon. He was a very serious Tamar Chacham in the yeshiva, 
and people went to him and people consulted him and asked him questions and so on. However, as Rav Shrira Gaon records it in his letter recording the history of the Gaonim, um, there was a point where there was a need to uh, appoint a new Gaon. Uh, the Reish Galusa, the Exilarch, would have had the opportunity to appoint the Gaon. So this Reish Galusa, Shlomo Bar Chazdai, appoints Rav Natrunai Bar Rav Emuna as the Gaon. Rav Natrunai Bar Rav Emuna was a student of Rav Acha. And Rav Acha, as Rav Shri Gaon reports in his very terse presentation, makes Aliyah. He simply leaves. Why did he make Aliyah? Was it just because he was upset that he was passed over for the position of Gaon? Was there something else involved? So Rav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, also known as the Nitziv, was the Rosh Hashiva of Velazhin at the end of the 19th century. And he wrote on, on Sfarim, which are either ignored or at least somewhat neglected uh, in other parts of Jewish scholarship. Uh, and he wrote on the Sheiltos, which is a book by Rav Achai, which we'll talk about more, I think, shortly. Um, but he wrote a commentary on it. And in his introduction to his commentary, he offers a very interesting explanation for why Rav Achai made Aliyah. He says Rav Achai went to Israel where there was no great yeshiva at this time. You did not have a yeshiva, certainly, to parallel what was in Bavel. Uh, and his reason for doing so was because he did not want to be a counter to the yeshivos in Bavel, meaning he was very afraid that if he were to set up shop somewhere with a large Jewish community and a significant yeshiva, that would cause people to write questions to him and would cause people to send their financial contributions to him, and that would weaken the yeshivos in Bavel. So he didn't want to do that. So he went to a place that was remote, but wasn't so remote that he would now be out of the picture of the Jewish world. He could still teach Torah. He could still spread Torah. And that's why he, uh, and that's why he made Aliyah at that point. And, and what exactly is um, the Shi'iltot of Baigon? What does it include? Good. So the, um, the Shi'iltot, and actually the Nitziv argues that there were two. There was something called Sheiltot, and there was Sheiltot Gedolot. Whenever you're dealing with um, the writings of the Gaonim, you recognize that there are always multiple manuscripts floating around. And that's something that the Nitziv wrestles with. But um, whether there's one or there's two, what, what this is, is a book that follows the order of the Parshios of the Torah, intended to teach lessons that are associated with each Parsha. Each section begins with the word she'ilta, question, and has the following structure. It presents a topic. It asks a question about the topic. It brings sources from both the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, as well as Medrash related to this. And then it answers the question either explicitly or implicitly. That's what this, you know, that's what this looks like. The big question is, why publish the text at all. This is a period of time when, generally speaking, we're not publishing Sfarim. Remember that in the Talmud itself, in the Gemara itself, we're taught that that which is verbal, which is transmitted verbally within Torah, is not supposed to be written down. The fact that the Gemara is written down is a tremendous novelty. And you don't find 
great writings that continue after the Gemara is written down. So what, what exactly was he doing? So Rabbi Menachem Meiri, writing, if I remember correctly, in the end of the 13th century, um, says Rabbi Choy wrote this for his son. His son did not want to learn. And so Rabbi Choy said, I want to make sure he at least has a digest of halachos that are relevant for each parsha. And what the Nitziv contends is that that's how Rabbi Choy started. But when Rabbi Choy left the yeshivas to go to Israel, he saw that there were scholars and sages who had not merited to go to the yeshivas in Bavel, and he realized his work would be valuable for them, and so he added to it and amplified it and built it up so that it would be a resource for them um, as well. Um, moving um, along, um, Rav Amram Gaon. What, where did he live? Little background. Right. So Rav Amram Gaon, we're now moving later, as you uh, as you noted, um, is in the ninth century. He is a Gaon from the yeshiva in Sura. His father was a Gaon, Rav Sheshna Gaon. My favorite point about Rav Sheshna Gaon is that he is credited with what may be the earliest halachic source to mention Kaparos. It has nothing to do with waving something over your head, but uh, but that seems to be the earliest source. So Rav Amram Gaon becomes the Gaon after. He's not normally, I should note, normally the being a Gaon is not hereditary. It isn't a given that the Gaon's son is going to become Gaon. Um, but that does happen uh in this case. And um Rav uh, Amram Gaon's response to Shari Tzedek, what's included in that? What's what's the contents of his response? What issues did he have to address? So the Shari said a collection of responsa isn't just his. It's a collection of responsa of various Gaonim. Um, we do have responsa of Rav Amram in the Shari Tzedek collection, as well as in a few others. Um, and they dealt with practical issues. They dealt with marriage and divorce issues. They dealt with Yom Tov issues. Pesach is coming. He had Pesach questions. This is before the time when it became routine for people to sell their chametz. So there's a response of Rav Amram Gaon where somebody asks him, if I don't normally do this, however, it happened to be that I gave a non-Jew my chametz before Pesach, and it was still around after Pesach, would I be allowed to buy it back from him? Not as a plan, but it just happened that way, and Rav Amram Gaon approves it. Um, so he dealt with you know, very practical types of questions, and he also gets quoted in the response of others. So you see others um, discussing issues and saying, Marav Amram, or something along those lines, uh, weighed in on this issue. And the Cedar, the prayer book, the famous prayer book of, of Amram Gaon, well, what's unique about it, and is it still influential today as a source for the development of prayer? Right. So that's that, that's a great question. Um, Rav Amram Gaon was approached by the Jews living in Spain for some kind of order of prayer. Worth taking a minute just to explain a little bit of backstory here. Um, in the early period of the Gaonim, the major center for Jewish life is in Bavel. There are Jews, as we said, living all around the Mediterranean. There's certainly an old Spanish Jewish community, but it's not that powerful. It's not that significant. In the later years of the period of the Gaonim, starting really in the ninth century, for a variety of social reasons, uh, 
um, the Jewish community in what's called Andalusia, Spain, Portugal, that area um, starts to grow. And they don't yet have their own authorities. So they keep writing away to the Gaon, looking for resources to support their community. And that's what you see here, is they want to know what is it exactly that we're supposed to be dominating? So the um, so that's how you get the um, the sitter of Rav Amram Gaon after his time of Saja Gaon would write one as well. By the way, the letter that I mentioned earlier um, that the Tashbates uses to show that communities funded uh, people learning in yeshiva was the letter that was sent to uh, to Rav Amram Gaon um, asking him for. A, uh, for a Seder Hatfila for an order of davening. Now, he doesn't just provide an order of davening. Um, he also provides halachic notes. And then his students added material from his responsa as well. It becomes immensely popular. It's republished over the centuries um, with added material, so that now if you look at something published as Rav Amram Gaon Siddur, unless you're looking at a publication that specifically drills down and tries to to identify the different layers, what you're seeing is more than just what Ravamram provided. But some of the interesting things to me that are found in his sitter as an Ashkenazi Jew living in 5783, um, his tachanun is more personal than the tachanun that we have in uh, in our sitter. Um, his birkat hamazon, right, after blessing after after meals, the harachaman section that we have after the initial four blessings of birkat hamazon, we have harachman this and harachman that. Hashem should provide this. He has a whole different set of harachmans uh, that are there. Um, his seder mentions options for what we call karpas, and what's interesting is that he actually calls one of the vegetables karpas. Whereas if you look in the Mishnah and you look in the Gemara, it just says use a vegetable. It doesn't use the word karpas. We today in our seder we call that stage of the seder karpas ravamram gon. Uh, maybe the origin uh, of that. His Rosh Hashanah davening includes a trua gedola at the end of the shofar blasts, which comes from the war with Yericho in uh, in Yahushua. We do a tekiah gedola. He has a trua gedola. That's the name. Um, okay. Um, uh, uh, we might be giving short uh, shrift to, 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 to each of these, but we want to kind of get a whole picture here. Um, Rav Sajigaon. Ah. So, Rosad Sorry. Yes. Rosad was born in Egypt, uh, the year 892. Um, he went to Bavel to learn. It's unclear at what age. We don't know a whole lot about his youth. We know that by the age of 20, he's already publishing. Um, he learns in the yeshiva in Sura. And in a very short time, I mean, he passes away, if I remember correctly, in the year 942. He's 50 years old. Um, but he becomes this real giant uh, across the world of halacha, Tanakh, Machshava, um, Jewish thought. He becomes somebody who everybody has to answer to. And um, so the influence of Rabstajigon, even in his lifetime, was prominent. Yes. Rabstajigon was um was dominant even in his day and even before he was a even before he was a gaon he was already very well known um he was a leader of the charge in his day um against karaism um without going into great depth on the uh on the karaites um they questioned rabbinic authority um in many ways 
So he weighed in, in with philosophical writings. Hamunot um, v'hadeot is his uh, major philosophical work, but he also wrote other philosophical writings against the ideas of the Karaites as well as against other foreign philosophies. There was a fellow named Chivi Habalki who published, I think it was about 200 questions challenging the Torah. And, uh, and he wrote a response in, in uh, rhyme, um, against the questions of Chivi Habalki. Um, he wrote responsa, he wrote piyutim, he wrote a, uh, a dictionary of sorts uh, for people who wanted to compose religious poetry. Um, he built up the yeshiva in surah in terms of its appeal to people at a time when it was in crisis, um, when, when people were relying less on the yeshiva. I, he was he, he was extremely dominant. I don't know if you want to talk about the calendar controversy of his day. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so this is actually before he becomes Gaon. Uh, there was a fellow by the name of Aharon ben Meir who was in Israel, uh, and he claimed the title of Gaon in the yeshiva in Israel. Um, he claimed to descend actually from the Davidic line, from the house of Hillel, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yudah Hanasi, and he's a scholar. And he takes on the calendar of his day. And in order to understand his challenge to the calendar, you need to know a little bit about the way the halachic calendar works. The halachic hour is divided into 1,080 chalakim. Each chalak, a little more than three seconds. That's going to matter in a bit. So keep, keep that piece of information in mind. There is a time each month called the molad. That's supposed to be the time when the moon enters its new phase at its conjunction with the sun, when the earth, the moon, and the sun are all in a straight line. That's not actually the time of the molad, but we don't need to go there in order for this to be clear. What we do need to know is that when the Chachamim set up a fixed calendar, such that we no longer work with observation of the moon, but rather I can open up my luach and know this is when it's going to be. I can go online to a website and know when uh, yeah, when Pesach is going to be 10 years from now. When they decided to do that, they created certain rules that are necessary for the good functioning of our calendar. One of those rules is Rosh Hashanah cannot start on a Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday. We want to avoid Hoshana Rabbah being on Shabbos. We want to avoid Yom Kippur being on a Friday or a Sunday. So therefore, Rosh Hashanah cannot start on Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday. That's one thing that you need to know. The other piece of information is that it's supposed to take six hours from the moon's conjunction, the time we're calling the Molad, until the moon is visible, right? When the moon is in line, Earth, moon, sun, you aren't going to be able to see the moon. The moon has to shift out of line in order for you to be able to see it. So it's supposed to take six hours for that to happen. Because of that, you're never going to have witnesses show up saying, we just saw the moon at the Molad. That can't be. Witnesses can't show up for the first six hours. Therefore, if the Molad occurs after midday, the moon will not be visible until after sunset, six hours later. Those who are paying close attention will realize we've just blended lunar hours and solar hours, right? The six hours about traveling, like, I'm not going to worry about that right now. The moon will not be visible until after sunset. Therefore, if the molad is after midday, Rosh Chodesh can't happen that day. 
Rosh Chodesh is going to be postponed until the next night. And that's a statement in the Gemara. So we have two rules. Number one, Rosh Hashanah won't start Sunday, Wednesday, Friday. Number two, if this conjunction time, the Molot, is after midday, we push Rosh Chodesh to the next day. Combining those two rules, if the Molot for the month of Tishrei, the start of Tishrei, occurs on Tuesday afternoon, so theoretically, Rosh Hashanah should then be Wednesday, but we don't want it to be on Wednesday, so we push Rosh Hashanah to Thursday. If the Molot for the Tishrei moon happens on Thursday afternoon, Rosh Hashanah will not be Friday. Rosh Hashanah will be pushed to Shabbos. And the key for us, if the Molot for Tishrei happens on Shabbos afternoon, Rosh Hashanah will be pushed all the way to Monday. So what happened was, in the year 4681 of our calendar, 921 in the, uh, the general calendar, it was anticipated that the year 4684, in other words, September, the year 923, would have that two-day postponement. Because the Molot of Tishrei was 13 or 14 minutes after midday on Shabbos. So Ben Mayer said, you're doing it wrong. If the, it isn't if the Molot is at midday. It's if the Molot is 642 Chalakim. I told you the Chalakim would be important. 642 Chalakim afternoon. 642 Chalakim, I think, is about 35 minutes. So if the Molot is after 35 minutes after midday, then Rosh Hashanah is postponed. But they're projecting it to be only 13 or 14 minutes after midday. Therefore, it should not be postponed. And he argues that that pending Rosh Hashanah should not be moved. Now, where did he end up with this idea? How did he get 642 Chalakim? There are a lot of different explanations that are offered. One explanation that's offered is he simply didn't like rabbinic postponements. Don't mess with the calendar so much. Another is he was upset that they're doing this out of Bavel, Israel is supposed to be the place that sets the calendar. That's the way it was in the times of the Beis Hamikdash, the Mishnah, they talk about it. So he says, we should be doing this in Israel. So the Gaonim are in an uproar, and they're trying to prevent him from creating a schism among the Jewish people. And to make a long story short, the job falls to Rav Sadia to write a, a memorial volume, essentially, of which we have fragments, documenting the dispute and the deeds of this fellow Ben Meir and the responses of the Gaonim and warning the entire Jewish world, we are not going to change what we're doing. He is incorrect and he's out of line. The, um, one of the reasons Rasaji is so motivated by this is because saying we don't want the rabbis messing with the calendar sounds very karaitic. It is a, a karaite type of idea and that really gets Rasaji going. Why would you say that Rav Sajig um, speaks to us today in, in the 21st century? What is it about his writings that kind of grabs us today? Right. So that's a good question, um, because when you read it, it's not easy reading. You know, a lot of his is written in poetry. Um, a lot of his writing was in Arabic and then translated into, into Hebrew. Um, but 
part of it is the personality for those who know the personality, meaning not just his writings, but actually, you know, knowing his story. Um, and it comes through in some of his writings as well. Um, he has this very fiery character to him. And I think that that appeals. He's very no nonsense. Um, to a certain extent, there's sort of a trait that you see in him and you see in others in what would become the Spanish school. Um, you, you see it in Ibn Ezra. You see it in the Rambam. And it, it's a, it's a you know, from a philosophical perspective, he's a strong rationalist. Um, and that comes through a lot in his, in his writing. One example, um, the issue of Gilgul, Gilgul Neshamos, the idea of reincarnation of the soul. He says, yeah, that's not ours. We don't, we don't believe in that. And of course, the Zohar is very strong in it. Um, and, uh, and I'm not entering that dispute. But he says, there are those among those who call themselves Jews who believe that dot, dot, dot. Like this, you can hear the sarcasm in his, uh, in his writing. Um, and I think that that's strong. But also, he was so dominant across so many fields. He's quoted on Halacha. He's quoted on Tanakh. He's quoted on on uh, on Gemara. He's quoted on philosophy. So he has so many students and people who follow him afterwards that you need to know about him. I mentioned before the letter, the epistle of, of Shur Gaon. Yes. Of Shur Gaon and and how important what is the the epistle in terms of. More, almost like a historical document that tries to uh, tell us the formation of, of the of the tome. Sure. So Rashir Agon is born roughly the year 906. Um, he actually lives a century. He dies in the year 1006. Um, I mentioned before that the period that being a Gaon was not hereditary, but his father of Hanania was a Gaon. His grandfather of Yehudai was a Gaon. Um, he claimed to descend from David Amelech. Um, at first, he was the Av Bezdin, the head of the rabbinical court in Pumpedisa. Um, he refused to recognize someone named Nehemiah ben Kohen Sadok as the Gaon when he, when he took the, the position in the year 960. Nehemiah had undermined the previous Gaon, and most of the sages did not accept him. Rav Shrira did not accept him. Nehemiah dies in the year 968, and Rav Shrira gets appointed as Gaon. He is the head of the yeshiva in Pumbadisa, and he works to really build it up. I mentioned before that by the time you get to the 9th century, and certainly the 10th century, um, the yeshivos are really in trouble financially. People are starting to develop centers elsewhere, and they're not funding the yeshiva, aside from not turning to the yeshiva with their questions. So he puts a major emphasis on creating classes for people outside of the yeshiva, soliciting the surrounding communities to send their questions to the Gonim. Um, he does fundraising. Um, he made some enemies. The year 997, he's already 90 years old. Um, enemies denounce him and his son, Rav Hai, to the caliph because he had connections to lands outside of the caliph's control. One of the major concerns for empires in those days was the fear of disloyalty, that their citizens might be looking to authorities outside their empire. Now, he did have connections to lands outside the empire because he had all his students and all the communities well beyond the caliph's reach. So he was imprisoned, um, and it really damaged his health. And he resigned as Gaon, and he made his son Rav Hai uh, Gaon after him. 
In terms of the Igeres, in terms of this letter of Rav Shri Ragaon, so the community in Kerwan had a yeshiva. Um, but the yeshiva was not at the level of the yeshiva in Bavel. It wasn't even at the level of the yeshiva in Israel. And they used to turn to the other yeshiva for, for guidance. So in the year 987, they send questions to Rav Shrira that are meant to combat Karaite-type beliefs. So the questions include, we have a Mishnah, which is supposed to be ancient, going back to the Anche Knesset Hagadola, the great assembly towards the beginning of the second base Hamikdash. So why are all the names of the sages in the Mishnah from the students of Rabbi Akiva? And why is it that if there's no name, we say that's Rabbi Meir talking? They're all from the end. What about all these sages from all those generations? Where are they? Why do we always paskin like that last generation of the Mishnah? Who put the Gemara in the order it's in? Sometimes the Masechto, the tractates of the Gemara, don't seem to fit a logical order. We have something called a Tosefta which records texts that didn't make it into the Mishnah. Why wasn't that in the Mishnah? Why do we have it at all? Why is it adding to the Mishnah? Um, how was the Gemara recorded? Who were the Savoroi I mentioned in the beginning of our discussion? All of these questions are sent to Rav Shrira, and he actually writes, there, there are multiple letters, but he ends up writing this Igeres to Rav Shrira Gaon, the letter of Rav Shrira Gaon, which is valuable, both because it provides answers to these questions that we want to know about, um, and also because it provides a lot of detail that we don't have elsewhere. He provides names and dates for many of our leaders, Savoraim, as well as Gaonim. He describes briefly some of the political issues like we saw with Rabbi Chai. We do have a couple of other historical records that show up later than this, but still in the period of the Gaonim, uh, Seder Tanoim Ba'amoraim, Seder Olam Zuta, but I think Igeres Rishiragon is considered the greatest and the most reliable um, out of these works. And you had mentioned already that um, his son um, was also a Gaon, I Ben Shirira. Um, mm-hmm. Who was he and what was his main writings? So he's born in the year 939 uh, in Pumbedisa. Um, he is Rav Shrira's only son. There was also a, uh, a daughter. Um, but um, he ends up inheriting the position of Gaon from his father. And again, not supposed to be hereditary, but the Me'iri, who I mentioned earlier, of Menachem Me'iri, describes Rav Hai as being Merubab Be'geonut. He has fourfold Gaonut, because he's from Rav Shrira, who's from Rav Hanina, who's from Rav Yehuda. The, um, this was unusual, um, but it marks his greatness. Um, he marries the daughter of another Gaon, uh, Rav Shmuel Bar Chafni, who's the Gaon of the yeshiva in Sura, and he's sort of his own story. Um, so Rav Hai works to extend the influence of the yeshiva, like his father did. He solicits communities far and wide to send him questions. Germany sends him questions. Um, he writes answers in Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic. He licenses communities to identify themselves as following his guidance. He creates Yarche Kala sessions for advanced students, regular classes for beginners, and the students come from everywhere. And thousands of people send questions to him, including great leaders. Rabbi Meshulam ben Klonimus is one. Shmuel Hanagid, leader of the Jews in Spain, um, sends questions to him. Um, he has this remarkable legacy. His students include Rabbeinu Hananel who is leader in Kerwan, Rabbeinu Gershom, who's leader in Germany, 
Um, Rav Yaakov Ben Nizim, also in uh, in Kerwan. He has he has students everywhere. Historians, Jewish historians, talk about the golden age of Spanish Jewry. How how um, Jewish populations had this somewhat harmonious relationship with the Muslim rulers in Spain. Could one say that the Gaonic period was also a golden age in Jewish history? It sounds like the Jews had authority. They had the Reish Galuta. They had Yeshivot. They had, was that a golden age, the Gaonic period? So it's a good question. And the answer is, depends on which year you pick. Um, first of all, in terms of the idea of Jews getting along with the Muslims, this is a concept that is often called convivencia. Um, that's somewhat controversial among historians, whether that's actually, you know, accurate. Definitely, according to everybody, Jews were still um, of dimmy status. You know, they were, they had a, a second status, second level status, which was, you know, billed as being for their protection, but it necessarily included obligations on them that marked them as second class citizens. Um, it could be that beyond that, they really did get along well. We do have records of problems that happen during this period at particular times. On the other hand, it's much better than what comes next. Meaning when you hit the 11th century, um, the Almohads, uh, as an example, are harsh persecutors of the Jews. You have the Almohads, the Abbasids, these dynasties at that point become even worse. But my answer is it really depends on when you're talking about. Any parting thoughts in terms of the whole period of the Gaonim that um, you know you would like to, to share with? I just that it's a fascinating period of time, and we obviously didn't t- discuss all of them. We didn't even discuss all of the ones who published. Um, there, there's so much there, and it's such a rich period in our history, and it's a formative period in in our history. I mean, Rav Hai Gaon. Um, really can be said to be the ancestor of multiple schools that end up forming both Ashkenazi Judaism and Sephardi Judaism. So knowing our roots, knowing where we come from, um, I think can be very helpful. It also helps us understand the chain of Misara. It helps us to understand, um, you know, who is the Rebbe of whom and why. And, uh, and I, I think that's very valuable in terms of halachic development, as well as for people's overall knowledge of uh, of who Jews are. So I think that's important. This has been, uh, again, as, as Rabbi Tarsina said, it's really just the tip, the tip of an iceberg here and, and to encourage all our listeners and viewers to go online on whyutor.org and Rabbi Tarsina's shiurim and, and articles are, are all over there and um, really fascinating. And again, thank you so much um, for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity.